From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. Thank you for downloading this podcast, especially you on your commute with the earphones in. This week, we're talking Goldman Sachs looks to tap out of the Apple deal. Really interesting emerging story here, trying to work out what's going on, kind of what Goldman's priorities are, and kind of what the Apple experience might look next with potential new partners. Visa spends $1 billion on Pismo, um, a really interesting fintech a success story for, for Pismo, an interesting player in the Brazilian payment space. We're joined by a local market expert who helps us to understand you know, what it is that Visa are buying and what we think the next steps might look like. And is a 600-foot office plant taking things too far? Um, we talk about the benefits of office plants and we get to decide whether to chop it down or not. We get into all this and much more on today's show. So let's get to it. But first, a few brief messages back shortly. Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite Size goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. Welcome to episode 758 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, David Barton Grimley, Director of Fintech Strategy. Hey, David, I think this is actually our first time doing, doing a show together, which is which is very exciting. So yeah, apart from apart from us hanging out, I suppose, what, what else exciting is going on in your life right now? Yeah, I think it is. Um... So I'm thinking a lot about generative AI, which I guess pretty much everybody is at the moment, kind of trying to figure it out. Um, so yeah, maybe I'm thinking about that too much. I don't know, maybe I need to get a life. But anyway, that's me. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you can think about it too much at the moment, surely. Um, up next, we have a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Bruno Denise, Managing Director at Spiralum. Welcome back to the show, Bruno. What shall our listeners know about you and Spiralum, please? Or Spiralum, have I pronounced it correctly? Apologies. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here again. Uh, I hope we're going to have an awesome time again. Uh, so basically, Bruno Denise here. Um, um, Spiraling is basically a company focused on financial innovation, uh, helping corporates and also uh, foreign uh, governmental bodies and regulators on how to navigate the world of financial innovation. Besides that, I'm also a professor at the University of Sao Paulo here in, in Brazil of uh, financial innovation and fintech, and I'm best-selling author in, in Brazil with two books, uh, published books with the upcoming one in September about crypto, and also a, a, a writer of some columns here in, uh, in the country as well. So. Glad to be here again. Well, so what a CV. I feel deeply inadequate before we've even got started. So thank you very much for, for sparing some time to, to join us. Thank you very much. And finally, we also have a very welcome return to Fintech Insider for Jason McCoola, publisher of Fintech Business Weekly. Always great to have you on the show, Jason. Thanks for coming back. Again, for any listeners who've not come across your, your newsletter, what, what should they know? 
Yeah, I, uh, I'm not a lawyer, but sometimes I play one on Substack. So uh, that's my joking way of saying I like to go deep into some of the legal regulatory compliance issues uh, to really understand what is like the underlying legal framework and how do fintechs, banks, and even VCs sort of understand and build or sometimes not build to those requirements. Awesome. Yeah, highly recommend it checking out if you've not already done so. I mean, what a, what a combo. We've got myself, David, a professor, uh, a lawyer. Uh, should be should be a great show. So, I'm not a real lawyer, for the record. Not a real lawyer. Okay, important clarification up front. I appreciate it. Um, okay, with that, let's let's get into the news. As always, there is a ton of it. So, our first story comes from the Wall Street Journal, and that is that Goldman is looking for a way out of its partnership with Apple. Goldman Sachs is reportedly in talks to offload its partnership with Apple to American Express. Apple launched its credit card in partnership with Goldman Sachs in 2019 and more recently made its new pay later service available to users in March. While Apple's new financial division is handling the lending side of its buy now pay later offering, it is still working with MasterCard and Goldman Sachs to enable the program. But now sources tell the journal that Goldman Sachs wants to exit from both of these partnerships and have American Express take its place. Um, well, yeah, interesting, interesting one. Jason, what, what do you think's going on here? The, the, the beautiful dream seems to be over. The dream does seem to be over. And um, I mean, quick quick disclaimer, I used to work at Goldman Sachs, not on the Apple Card product. You know, I think this is the latest um, you know, point in the story of Goldman exiting their consumer franchise altogether, right? So we saw uh, the firm stopped writing consumer loans under its Marcus brand late last year. First, they were going to keep Green Sky, which is a point of sale lender. A couple weeks ago, news broke that they're shopping and trying to sell Green Sky, likely for a fraction of the two point two billion that they paid for it. You know, the timing of this Apple news, in a sense, is a bit curious, right? The Apple Savings account launched, I think, just like two months ago, so very recently. Um, and I say generally, you know, received um, you know, quite a bit of attention as far as uh, the high interest rate it was offering, 4.15% APY, as well as the ability to sort of scoop up those deposits quite quickly. So, I mean, the the comms and the messaging does feel a bit disjointed. Like, why were you launching this thing six weeks ago, and now we're hearing that you're trying to you know sell off the partnership to to Amex? I think part of that may just be the nature of large banks and large banks having you know different power centers different decision makers that may have different agendas you know i think part of this is also perhaps that the the profitability or the returns you know aren't not looking nearly as good as that uh, as Goldman may have initially thought. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I suppose to your point about like the the two landing so close together, yeah, it's really interesting to have a think about that. I mean, part of me wonders if it's just that you know the amount of time it takes for these initiatives to to kind of come into the public space. You know, how long have they been working on that savings offering, and and then they make these these changes in strategy very quickly. But um, David, what was what was your take on on this one? What did you think when you saw the news? Yeah, also, I mean, they've lost a lot of money on this over a billion over a billion dollars, and in the current economic climate, it's very difficult to sustain those kind of losses. I also think there's something very interesting about the timing that, that it was launched. You know, it was launched in 2019. It was launched in a in a pre-COVID environment with sort of loose credit. It was launched quite surprisingly, I think, as a bit of a subprime product, right? Like the average customer has a FICO score below 660. Uh, there's all sorts of problems with, with things like that. So, 
can you sustain that kind of product proposition in this day and age? I think it's very, very difficult to to have something like that. So I I also think at the time there was a lot of hype about embedded finance, right? And that may have contributed to the excitement and maybe to the product roadmap and some of the things that they wanted to build out um, in the transaction business over the over the following years, which have proved too expensive to do as well. So I think this has been long coming, but uh, also a very exciting potential future for American Express, who might have a more compelling proposition to bring to the table in some ways. Bruno, before we jump into the details, I was yeah, just keen to give you the chance to give, give your say as well. What did you reckon? Yeah, definitely. The fundamentals, uh, I think, looking back, uh, com- uh, especially financial financial wise, uh, changing a lot since the, the release of the first product uh, together by the two institutions. Um, but one thing is for sure, um, you know, Apple is a dominant player in this in this sense. And, and, and when you look at that, despite the fact that Goldman Sachs is a big and huge institution as well, but I think that uh, sooner or later, um, Apple is going to make it uh, their own infrastructure to to try to solve these problems because uh, they cannot at, at some point afford to lose money on the financial side just to benefit the ecosystem side of, of the, the whole proposition. But Anyways, up until there, let's see if uh, things are going to go well with uh, Emax and uh, and other potential partners for sure. Yeah, Jason, I suppose keen to get your thoughts on this potential Amex type. You know, as David's alluded to, you know, there has been this talk about you know, the Goldman you know, partnership leaning slightly more towards that that lower FICO scoring customer. I mean, Amex doesn't typically have that reputation. So do you think that's going to have a big impact on, on how customers are actually able to experience this product going forwards? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, historically, Goldman itself, you know, in, in its Marcus product, did not lend to consumers below 680, 660 FICO. If you look at their filings, I think something like 5% of that book of loans was considered subprime. Whereas in the Apple Card portfolio, it was actually about a quarter of the loans loan book was below 660 FICO, which is you know considerably larger proportion. My understanding is that that was basically a requirement of winning that Apple co-brand deal. Right, so presumably, you know, maybe there's a chance for uh, a purchaser of this partnership to renegotiate certain aspects of it. You would imagine that that might be a prerequisite, right? If if Goldman, if the perception is Goldman is getting rid of this because it's a bad deal, why would somebody else, some other bank, want to buy it without you know some kind of sweetener or some sort of renegotiation of some of the terms? So I mean, one piece of that was the fact that you know the the credit box, the underwriting is more expansive. Um, another piece is there are no fees on this card. And I don't just mean no annual fee, which there are plenty of credit cards that offer no annual fee. It's no annual fee, no late fees, but the card is still offering, I think baseline is 2% cash back. So the economics of this seem you know a bit challenging, which may be why Goldman is looking to, to exit the partnership as part of its broader pullback from consumer. To your point, Kate, does it fit in with sort of Amex's business strategy, credit strategy, at first look, it wouldn't appear to. And then very quickly to some of the points Bruno made, you know, Apple is not an easy partner to have, right? I mean, it is now the world's first $3 trillion company by market cap. 
Uh, and Apple has made no secret that it wants to insource more of these capabilities, its so-called project breakout. So building its own uh, issuing processing capabilities, you know, doing more of the servicing and underwriting itself. It acquired a UK company, Credit Kudos, uh, which uses open banking data to underwrite. So, so Apple has made no secret that it wants to take on more of the responsibility and presumably more of the unit economics of offering these kinds of products. In the US, you cannot issue a credit card without a bank partner. So the question is, who wants to be Apple's bank partner? That's that's the question, yeah. David, do you think this will have an impact on the wider embedded finance space more broadly? Like, is this going to be seen as a failure of embedded finance? I certainly hope not, um, because although the, you know a lot of it is embedded, it is fundamentally a, a credit card proposition that has a really amazing UX and, and all of that kind of stuff. I think embedded finance has gone through a lot of problems recently with a lot of down valuations, a lot of doubt about the regulatory about the regulatory future. I think those issues are probably a bigger problem for embedded finance than this particular um, example. But I do still think embedded finance is an extremely bright future, particularly in things like um, B2B supply chain financing, merchant cash advance, all of the more business side where some of the needs and jobs to be done are more underserved than in the retail side for sure. Um, so I think it remains to be seen, but I don't think this in particular is going to um, is going to sink embedded finance. Bruno, have we seen any partnerships on this scale in, in LATAM? Are we kind of seeing any similar partnerships between kind of major sort of consumer facing brands and, and underlying financial brands? Well, Apple is an outlier, a total outlier in this whole uh, thing. So when you're thinking about embedded, embedded finance, uh, is a, I think it's one of the largest clients someone can have. And it demands a lot of, you know, potential. And and, and, you, and, and again, it's a it's a dominant partner in a relationship like this. Uh, but I think there are other, other, you know, many other opportunities uh, related to embedded finance in Lisbon America by some of the big players in other fields of like retailers, telcos, things like that. But for sure, that's that's a, that's a different case, total different story. And uh, I think that uh, especially here in Brazil and Latin America, there's a lot of space for uh, to grow uh, into uh, the distribution of more and more services and more than that, becoming and uh, making it all uh, contextual as, as you know, when we, as you add all the data capabilities uh, brought by open finance and uh, AI and all of that. I think there's some interesting things going on here. Okay, cool. Well, definitely what space to, to watch. And, and as you said, Jason, kind of to keep an eye on in terms of that wider strategy of Apple and kind of who they're going to look to partner with next, whether that's Amex or kind of people beyond that. Um, I'm going to move us on to our next story. And this one comes from Reuters. Visa $1 billion buyout of Brazil's Pismo eases fintech M&A slowdown. Payments giant Visa has agreed to acquire Brazilian fintech platform Pismo for $1 billion in cash to expand its footprint in Latin America. The Pismo deal is the largest fintech exit in Latin America since Newbank went public in late 2021 and the largest disclosed startup exit so far this year. For Visa, the world's largest payments processor, it is the first major takeover since 2021 when it bought European open banking platform Tink for $2.2 billion, as well as British cross-border payments provider Currency Cloud. Sao Paulo-based Pismo's cloud-based platform for financial institutions hosts more than 70 million accounts and transacts more than $200 billion 
a year. Bruno, fantastic to have you with us to, to kind of help break this one down and come to you first. You know, what are Visa getting for their $1 billion? Sounds like a lot of money, right? Definitely, yeah. And I think it was a very important thing for, for Latin American deals as well, uh, you know, considering now the whole situation we're going through globally. Uh, but in the case of Visa, Visa, and you just mentioned some of the other acquisitions they made, just like Tink, uh, Currency Cloud. It's all about uh, you know diversification of those big players moving towards infrastructure. Uh, so in case of Visa, I think that uh, Pismo adds this banking banking as a service and processing uh, you know piece to their whole stack. Uh, so I think it's uh, it's 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 an important movement. Um, there are some rumors that uh, Mastercard was was also involved in in this deal, tried to compete for this deal. Uh, Mastercard, a bank, and uh, you know a private equity firm. So that that those are the rumors. Um, but I think that Visa is really trying to make it vertical, uh, verticalizing uh, their operation and trying to to put this uh, another possibility for them in terms of uh, how they expand uh, their tech stack and the rails that they they they, they work with. So, I, it, and I think that when you look at the different phases of fintech. Uh, here in Brazil, we had the first phase. Uh, I think Nubank is the poster child for the first phase of FinTech here, FinTech 1.0. Uh, for the second phase, I think when you're talking about embedded finance, now Pismo is is a big uh, case. And uh, and now I, I'm looking forward to see uh, crypto because I also see companies just like Mastercard and Visa that uh, you're making some acquisitions in this field and trying to tap into this market, not to lose the opportunity. But when you talk about infrastructure in this in this specifically piece. Uh, but yeah, I think it's it was a interesting movement and uh, point some directions even for the future of B2B uh, opportunities and deals in Brazil and Latin America. Absolutely. Yeah, we all love a bit of Visa versus MasterCard fisticuffs, right? Everyone loves a bit loves a bit of drama. Um, I suppose for, yeah, for people that aren't familiar with the, or as familiar with the Brazilian you know, payments landscape, I suppose, could you help, it, help them understand you? How does Pismo fit? Like, what is it that they do specifically that, that makes them interesting, do you think? Yeah, they do payment processing. Uh, they, they offer basically banking as a service, uh, but they are much more focused on the tech side of it. The cool thing, and I think that is different from the other players, some of the other players, like their competitors, like Doc, uh, also take care of the regulatory piece of it. They are more focused on the, on the tech part of that, and they try to be agnostic on their offering. And, and I think that's a very important thing, because Pismo expanded globally. Uh, they had uh, also offices in Singapore, offices in the UK and places like that, other places in Asia. So uh, I know that they are positioned themselves as a, uh, an agnostic uh, type of banking as a service solution uh, and tech. Uh, and they do that, that, all of that on cloud and, and things like that. Cool thing here is I really believe that that also marks a new time for Brazil in terms of companies that are made to be global. Uh, for a long time, we haven't heard much about, about startups in general, the Brazilian startups uh, out there. Uh, the whole deal here seems like it's not, not even a typical Brazilian fintech company. Uh, even when we talk about Nubank, Nubank is a company that well-known in Latin America. People know them globally, but people have used that only in Latin America, different from other players like Revolut that are all, all in different parts, different geographies. So I think that's a, a new time here for, for fintechs, uh, Brazilian fintechs that are also making their tech and trying to bring their tech to different uh, places all over the world. And one more piece on that, I think it's important, that um, 
weeks prior to, to the announcement of this deal, uh, Bismol uh, made a deal with uh, City uh, in uh, trying to provide, providing them with their infrastructure. So it's just like, it's not only about Visa trying to get some, some footprint here, additional footprint here in Brazil in, in, in infrastructure. They are also into a company that uh, is also selling tech to uh, global players like CG. So it's it's a it's a, a different thing, and I, I think it's interesting to to take a look on that because it gives some clues of the future of the Brazilian uh, fintech scene as well. Yeah, absolutely. Tons of tons of great insights. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, Jason, do you think this deal by Visa will kind of wake up the market? We know we have seen a bit of a drop in venture funding in LATAM kind of this year, but as I suppose we've seen everywhere, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the major establishment players like Visa, like MasterCard, you know, they're constantly looking for ways to grow, right? And there's, in my mind, at least sort of two key ways to do that. One is to increase your product offering. The other is geography. And this does this does both. You know, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on uh, the Brazilian banking or payments market. But when you think of Visa or MasterCard, you typically think of the primary offering being the payment network, right? And just looking at um, some of the information on this acquisition specifically highlights the core banking and issuer capabilities that Pismo has, right? So in the US, when you think core banking, you think these old school companies like a Jack Henry or FIS. Uh, and when you think issuer processor, you also think old school companies like FIS or somewhat newer companies like a Galileo, Marketa, or your sort of next gen like a Lithic um, or a High Note. So here, at least based on sort of the news release and how this is being positioned, it's giving Visa a stronger foothold in Brazil, which is globally one of the largest markets. It's giving it new capabilities in core banking and issuing. And perhaps most importantly, uh, it's giving it connectivity to emerging rails like PICS, right? So in a sense, it's both a hedging and a growth strategy, which I think, you know, presumably means really good returns for the VCs that invested in, in Pismo. Absolutely. David, obviously, this isn't the first piece of M&A that Visa have dabbled in. You know, what does their track record tell us about how we think they'll approach this one and, and kind of how successful we think it might be? Well, they have a pretty um, phenomenal track record of acquisition. So, you know, they acquired Tink in 2021 for $2 billion. They acquired Currency Cloud and also in 2021 as well and Yellow Pepper in, in 2019. So you can tell they have a pretty bold acquisition strategy around the world. And it just goes to show you how important these acquisitions of new technologies, new geographies that, to Bruno's point, can also expand around the world are to... to people like Visa and to MasterCard. I also think there's a, is, there's a kind of another interesting story here about um, the growth of payment processes and BAS providers um, in markets, not just like Brazil, but also in Africa. So in countries like Nigeria, in Egypt, for example, um, in Kenya and in South Africa, the importance of having, you know, modern payment rails of BAS infrastructure, which actually can support new, new kind of digital wallets and new kind of digital business models is growing massively. I mean, you look at companies like Flutterwave, for example, which is growing throughout Africa. There's a very interesting story here um, about these massive growth markets, which have a lot of untapped potential, in fact, growing into um, Western markets like Europe uh, and America as well. So I 
that's kind of interesting too. Yeah, I mean, I thought you know, Bruno, the super interesting point about how potentially you know f- some of these massive success stories in the LATAM market haven't yet moved into into European markets. So you know, obviously, you mentioned New Bank, the poster child, I think globally for for fintech. Do you think that will change? Do you think we will start to see some of these really successful LATAM fintechs move into move into other markets more as as the kind of industry progresses? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think this again, this, this case for Pismo um, is uh, is a benchmark for for other players for that the dynamics of it. And I believe that if it wasn't the case that Pismo is a is a global player, uh, you know, operating multiple geographies, I don't think this deal would would, would come with that number uh, with that price tag on. And I think that that is also good because it also put a, a price tag on Brazilian players, uh, especially in this field. Um, so it's a, it's a very important thing to consider. Uh, but I think that with the, the whole benchmark that we have here with BICS, with open finance, I think we are in a good position to uh, bring some of those ideas, the creativity with the different, because our banking system here is pretty advanced due to the hyperinflation period in the 80s and the 90s. And this, then after that, in the uh, after 2011, 2013, we start seeing all these uh, possibilities for new players to tap into the market. Uh, and I think we all the lessons learned from our history here and from the new uh, building blocks that we are adding to in terms of infrastructure here to Brazil, just like BIGS, Open Finance. And, and now we have also a, a new regulation on a, a regulatory framework on crypto. Uh, which is pretty advanced, and and our own CBDC, which is in the works and and is being tested by by institutions. I think with all of that, we can uh, for sure create companies that can bring some of this flavor to to other geographies, and that's why I think we're going to keep expanding and not only expanding with those ideas of these building blocks here, but also attracting players from outside to create their their companies here, while places like the US are still confused whether um, uh, crypto is a commodity or what it is. It is an asset, what it is. Uh, I think we are solved on this part and uh, I think it's going to help our ecosystem as well. Brazilian world domination, you heard it, heard it here first. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause. We'll be back very shortly. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Welcome back. Before we get on to the second half of today's news, a reminder to go check out the latest episode of our FinTech Insider Insights show. In our most recent episode, we're asking, can financial services change how people think about money? Alonafess's own Jason Bates and me were joined by guests from Nationwide and Plum to delve deep on this juicy topic. You can find that podcast wherever you got this one. 
Okay, let's get back into the news. I'm excited for us to jump into this story. This one comes from the BBC, and that is that UK banks have been warned against closing accounts. The UK Culture Secretary has said she is concerned banks may be closing customer accounts for political reasons. The comments from Member of Parliament Lucy Fraser followed claims from politician and Brexiteer Nigel Farage, who said his bank was closing his accounts. Farage claimed it was serious political persecution from an anti-Brexit banking industry. Industry. Ms. Fraser said in an interview on radio station LBC, I'm concerned people's accounts might be closed for the wrong reasons and it's something they, i.e. the banks, should be thinking about carefully. Banks are regulated and those are the sort of things regulators should consider. Coots, the private bank in question, is understood to have shut Nigel Farage's bank account after he fell below the lender's wealth requirements. We asked you, the listener, on 11FS LinkedIn whether financial services should be non-political. With 200 votes, 81% said yes, they should stay out of politics, and 19% said no, financial services should be involved in politics. Sam Larson commented, it depends what you define as political. Some people think climate change is political, I'd call it science. Uh, and Colin Payne commented, since when has politics been to do with anything but money? Fair points indeed. David, do you think this was a political move or more standard banking practice put under the spotlight? I definitely think there's something here. Um, but, you know, I think with everything that N- Nigel uh, Farage says, you have to kind of like almost divorce him from the actual political issue because, you know, for some of our international listeners, I mean, Nigel Farage, whether or not you agree with what he says or not, I'm sure everyone will agree that he's an extremely astute political actor. But I suppose the thought and the philosophy that, you know, should banks be making pragmatic decisions on whether or not they like people and whether or not they should be having their um, bank account open or not is is a terrible thing. And that's why most people say they should stay out of politics completely. But I actually think it gets a little bit more complicated than that. I mean, I agree with Colin Payne, not just because I know him. Hey, Colin, he um, used to be my boss. But uh, aside from that, I think he's actually right. There's another uh, controversy going on in the UK at the moment in regards to this, and that's the interest rates issue at the moment. So the FCA is really pushing banks hard in the UK to offer better savings interest rates. And there's a lot of pushback from, from people saying, actually, you know, you're encroaching too far into how banks naturally compete. But where really is the line? I mean, you know, what what is fair for customers and at what point should um, the government actually step in and 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 do something on the Nigel Farage front. I mean, I suppose what I find slightly hilarious is that in um, in doing all of this, he has revealed that uh, not only is he a customer of Coots, but actually that um, one of the reasons why uh, Coots may have shut down his account uh, is that he no longer qualifies for their uh, minimum wealth threshold, which I think is absolutely hilarious and very telling on how things are going for Nigel Farage. Maybe you can derive my political leanings from that statement. I'm not entirely sure. But it is one thing that we know about wealth banking is that they very regularly adjust their bands. So there's been a lot of innovation and disruption in the wealth banking market in the last few years with new challenger brands coming in. So banks like Coots and, you know, NatWest who own them and Lloyds and all of these banks all around the world are constantly thinking about, you know, what what is our segment? What does our target customer look like? And therefore making some pretty hard decisions around, you know, who they choose to keep on the basis of that. So in his case, it may just be a question of, sorry, mate, you're not wealthy enough. Yeah, I loved the fact that, yeah, as part of this story, yeah, they revealed that you know, he got thrown out of his Coots account and then he was offered a NatWest account, which is kind of <laughs> positioned as if that was kind of like a massive insult and, oh my God, poor Nigel Farage, when actually like probably the vast majority of people have accounts either at NatWest or like in banks, you know, similar to NatWest. So yeah, 
poor Nigel Farage of his lowly NatWest account, like like the rest of us lowly commoners. Um, but I suppose, yeah, being serious about it, Jason, you how how big a deal is it to be a you know, a politically exposed person in in the world of finance? Uh, this is um, an interesting concept. The, the PEP, the po- politically exposed person, that concept actually doesn't exist in the U.S. anti-money laundering framework, uh, although I am generally familiar with it. I mean, the, the rough idea is that if you are a, say, a government appointee or even a, a family member, a spouse or a child of somebody who is a political person, there's potential that there's a higher level of risk, say, of corruption, money laundering, etc. And so the way that most financial institutions will deal with this is through you know, additional due diligence when you're opening that account, when you're onboarding that customer. So doing, you know, enhanced due diligence uh, that perhaps, you know, a, a regular person at NatWest wouldn't, would not get. Um, and then perhaps also additional scrutiny around transaction monitoring. So it's like, oh, if you had, you know, five million pounds come into your account, like maybe we should do some additional uh, documentation and ask some additional questions about the providence of that money and make sure that it was legitimate and not a bribe, not the result of, you know, embezzling funds, etc. So I don't think there's anything, you know, inherently um, – you know, serious in being being a pep, being a politically exposed person. Uh, it just it means that you know the financial institutions that serve you are going to need are well should likely be doing additional diligence and transaction monitoring. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a ton of sense. I says, Bruno, how does this story sound to someone you know, sat sat in Brazil? Does it just seem completely nonsensical like or do you have any similar issues that you guys see in, in your market as well yeah I think sometimes people mix up uh, political reasons uh, and sometimes there there aren't uh, political reasons on that but on the, all the, the whole things on political exposed uh, person also happened here in Brazil as well I think there is some scrutiny on 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 that but not like this I think that this, this case is seen, sounds a, a different thing just like uh, when you're downgraded from uh, where you are, and um, you're not satisfied by that, and, and just uh, trying to, you know, spread out loud uh, what you think about that, and try to mix up as a political reason, but not not, not uh, usual to see this uh, around here. Yeah, I mean, again, my my understanding you know, from again my very external perspective on, on Brazil is again you also have similar challenges in Brazil about the relationship between you know, the banking sector and, and and your politicians you know so you know, Bolsonaro obviously had quite a close relationship with the, the bank the banks is, is my understanding and obviously the new president is is also kind of now having some some clashes with the central bank so you know, do you do you think that is going to continue to be a, a theme in, in Brazil do you think that fintechs are going to have to become more political in Brazil if, if they're going to continue to grow and thrive? Well, I, I think that, um, to be honest, I, I don't I don't see that as a as a huge problem. Uh, you know, there's some people that blame that during the Lula government, which is you know the previous administration from Lula, uh, banks profited a lot. Was one of the biggest times for them and as as well. So um, I think that people you know sometimes try to mix up you know all, all those aspects and 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 and, and different arguments on on, on that. But anyways, I, I really think that um, right now uh, in the political field in Brazil, since we separated the central bank here to be independent from the government, I think things uh, improved 
Uh, I hope the things continue that, that way, despite the fact that, that uh, Lula nowadays want, uh, don't, don't want that to happen. That, that he really wants to, things to go back from the time where he was uh, administrating and, uh, and, and it was just like someone upon, appointed by the, uh, the president, not with this difference of two years since someone appoints uh, someone and then it goes into the, uh, the, the next uh, administration uh, until the mid-terms of the next administration. But anyways... You know, if things it's continued like this, it will be awesome. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, David, do you think Coots will actually quite appreciate this extra attention? You know, I guess, is it that kind of no publicity is bad publicity thing? Or do you think they're actually wishing this would just go away? Yes, I think they'll wish this would just go away. It's that whole sort of British stiff upper lip. I mean, a fun, a fun fact about Coots is it's served every member of the British royal family since George the Fourth in the 1800s. Um, and there are quite a few banks like this in the UK that pride themselves on discretion, on being able to squirrel your money away, on on having you know ad- advisors that you know very well and are able to give you access to opportunity and, and everything like that. And Coots will have customers on every side of the political divide and won't want to have anything to do with this, this debate whatsoever. Yeah, it's interesting. They, they actually kind of seem to be trying to move out a little bit more into the public space, right? They launched a, a big, well, a fairly big advertising campaign. I think their first ever in, in 2021, kind of featuring lots of sort of cool, young, hip people that made me think, obviously, I'm not a cool, hip person, but I'm a bit, <laughs> I sort of fitted with the age profile of the people that they had in their adverts. And it made me think, should I be a Coots customer? And then this Nigel Farage story comes out of their wealth limits in the public. And I'm like, definitely, definitely should not be a Coots <laughs> customer. So clearly there are lots of young people earning far more money than me, but I'm deeply jealous of. Okay, going to move us on to our next story. This one comes from the FinTech Times, and that is open banking education is a must in Canada, as only 9% have heard of it. As Canada works towards the creation of an open banking framework, a new survey suggests that boosting awareness needs to be top of the agenda. The report by the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, the FCAC, has revealed less than 10% of Canadians have heard of open banking at all. Wow. After hearing a definition of open banking, only 15% of respondents said they would participate, while 29% said they might and 52% said they would not. Only 18% of respondents knew that protections are different when using services offered by fintechs versus banks, and more than 80% of Canadians would not keep using financial products and services if they did not trust that their information or money would be protected against theft, fraud or accidental loss. Um, Yeah, David, some pretty damning stats for open banking if, if, if they're kind of to be taken at face value. Um, do you think do you, do you think these are, are accurate? Um, do the public nearly, really need to know what open banking is to benefit from it? Yeah, wow. I mean, I don't think they really do need to know about open banking. I mean, a, a, another thought experiment would be, I mean, imagine putting a survey out there about, you know, do you know what a payment rail is or do you know what an API is? I mean, it's a little bit like why is this question even being asked? And and it but it, it does raise a, a couple of interesting questions about the branding of open banking. In that, open banking really should be working as an underlying enabler to, you know, facilitate the cheap, if not free, movement of money to provide insights and information to people across all of their needs. And it just it just needs to work, right? And. And actually, in in some ways, I think it is working extremely well. So, you know, the counterfactual to to this uh, survey is if you look in countries like India, 
UPI, which is an open banking rail, is ubiquitous throughout the country. I think in 2022, it had something like 74 billion transactions go through it. Um, in the UK, open banking has been growing, although I really think that we've been very slow to the pump and in catching up with some of the other countries and 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 what they're and what they're doing. So, I think for me, it's more about being able to integrate open banking APIs deeper and deeper into customer experiences to fulfill their needs. And actually, I've been very impressed in the UK recently um, about being given open banking options and payments now. And I, and I think it's a gradual adoption and seeing of the ability to make a payment from a bank account as opposed to a debit or credit cards. And I, I really do believe that people, as they go through it, will begin to understand that actually maybe this is cheaper and maybe this is better and more secure. But I don't know if asking people in a survey like that is going to give you the kind of confidence or information that, that you need about how it's going to be adopted. What they should be thinking about is API stability. They should be thinking about availability. They should be thinking about you know, encouraging financial institutions and fintechs to, um, to be using it to solve some of their, their use cases. That's my point of view. Yeah, um, I am intrigued to see, because you know, they talk about giving people a definition of it and, and then sort of asking people what they what they think. And it's pretty depressing that, I mean, again, you'd want to read the definition. Maybe it was like the boring, most depressing, frightening thing ever on paper. But you know, 52% saying they would not use it is an interesting reflection for me on on Canadians' attitude towards data sharing and, and privacy. Jason, I don't know if you've got any perspectives on, on that. Yeah, I mean, I would say I, I broadly agree with David in the sense that I don't understand really what the value of asking this question in a survey is, right? I mean, imagine if you asked, you know, would you use HTTP, right? The thing that lets us, you know, look at web pages. People generally don't care about the how, they care about the what. Like, what does this piece of technology let me do? So if you ran a survey asking, you know, do you want to be able to see you know, all of your transactions across different banks and different credit cards in one place, people are probably much more likely to say yes. Or would you be open to sharing your current account, your checking account transaction data, if it meant you were more likely to be approved for a loan or receive a lower interest rate? I imagine people would be more likely to answer the question yes, when you're, you know, you're essentially explaining the use case and the benefit instead of just saying, like, do you know what open banking is? So yeah, as a piece of uh, survey data, I'm not sure how useful this is. (laughs) Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, Bruno, like, what's the state of open banking in Brazil at the moment? David alluded to other markets learning, I suppose, the lessons of of earlier markets. But from what I can see, it sounds like open banking's had fairly good uptake so far in Brazil, given it's a relatively early stage. Yeah, fantastic. The thing is, when you talk about um, an infrastructure and and, and ask people to define it, so tell me about this specific infrastructure aspect. I think that it's hard and I I don't see much value on on that as well. Uh, And I really believe that those are building blocks for financial institutions to create something of value. It depends on the value proposition. If it's something that makes sense, of course, people are going to use it and, 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 and all that. But I think one important aspect of that, which I, I still think it's relevant considering, is about data sharing. Uh, you don't, don't need to say anything about open finance, open banking dynamics, APIs, anything like that for the general public, but you need to, to, to tell them about data sharing. 
uh, and about what are the rights that they have uh, around that, uh, how they are protected uh, after they share the data, all of that, I think it's too important. So I think we, should, we need to flip this, this conversation. Uh, I think in Brazil, we are uh, advancing a lot. I think we're leveraging our possibilities on open finance uh, on top of the open banking experience of the UK and all the lessons learned from UK, Australia, all those other different places, uh, and trying to uh, correct some of the roots. And another cool thing is, at the same time that we started our open finance journey here in 2020, we have the launch of PIX. So we have a brand new rail that's totally integrated with it. So it helps a lot in cases in which we have payment initiation, for example, uh, and, and PIX is already ubiquitous in the country, so everybody use it. So I think that here in Brazil, we're still in very operational phase, which is like basic type of use cases. Okay, you share your data with me. I can improve your credit card limit. I can try to offer you a best deal in terms of a loan. But I think the next uh, stage of it is just is, is experiences. Once you can use on all of that to, um, for example, and, and even this, the president of the Central Bank of Brazil pitched the idea because uh, we already had the building blocks to do so which is basically a, an idea of super app or at least an a, a, a aggregator, a financial aggregator in which you can use it and access all your different accounts and move money because of the payment initiation uh, through this unique dashboard. And uh, so that's going to be transformational because in his view, people don't, don't need to have like eight, nine, well, not, 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 not that much, but three, four different banking apps in their, their phones. And you just need one and, and you can integrate, integrate all of that uh, through a single dashboard. Um, so I think that we're moving towards this uh, reality um, and we already have the building blocks for that. Uh, so it's going to be a, a fun ride uh, the next months. Awesome. Um, Jason, I suppose you sit in a really interesting position in that you have the US experience, but you know, you're now based in, in the EU. So I guess you can probably make a more direct comparison between like the two different approaches to this than a lot of people. What What's your take on, I suppose, the EU versus the USA when it comes to the rollout of open banking initiatives? Yeah, I mean, I think there are you know there there are pros and cons uh, or or drawbacks um, and benefits to to each approach, right? I mean, on the European side, you know, on the one hand, by codifying you know requirements into law, you can achieve uh, more consistent adoption of of what those standards are, right? You know, on the flip side, in the U.S., you know, you're seeing You've seen the business case and use cases evolve in the absence of regulation, right? And, and frankly, um, I would argue that, that that latency is perhaps a bit too long in the sense that there was a requirement for data portability in Dodd-Frank, which was passed 13 years ago, and there is still no regulation that actually defines and implements that. That's a process that's ongoing now at, at the CFPB. I mean, I think in a perfect world, you would have regulation and law that codified what was happening uh, in the marketplace, right? So you see certain use cases uh, and certain standards evolve that are like, okay, you know, banks like this, fintechs like this, it's useful for cash flow underwriting, it's useful for fraud prevention, but maybe it's less useful for some other thing. And you have an opportunity to have some experimentation before those laws are written. So I would say that perhaps 
The U.S. you know certainly misses the mark as far as having standards that are clearly codified and required to have mass adoption among all the banks. On the flip side, in the EU, you know perhaps you had the what is the expression the cart leading the horse, where certain things were written into regulation before understanding whether or not they necessarily made sense in you know in specific use cases or specific you know financial incentives business models. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. I think it's just. Like for the global fintech financial services space as a whole, it's just fantastic that we're at this point now where we can have these interesting discussions about how markets are doing things differently and the kind of pros and cons of, of those different approaches, right? Rather than holding up where one or two isolated markets with probably, you know, too high a level of praise for just doing something. Like now we're actually able to critique you know, what is it people are doing and how they're kind of following through on those initial promising steps into actual, as you said, David, into actual customer experiences and, and journeys. Um, okay, well, one to, one to watch for Canadians and their uptake of open banking. But we're going to move on now to the section of the show called Big Click Energy, which is a quick fire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Um, DBG, what have you got for us this week? So... Taylor Swift fans caused a 45% surge in UOB card applications across Southeast Asia from Yahoo Finance. So UOB, United Overseas Bank, said it experienced a very significant surge of 45% in card application volumes across Southeast Asia. This follows the announcement on the 21st of June that the bank's credit and debit card holders will have privileged access to tickets for Taylor Swift's The Errors Tour concerts in Singapore. God, imagine that. Daily average UOB credit card applications across Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam in the week the announcement was made increased by 45% compared with the preceding weeks in June. The bank added that debit card application in Singapore and Vietnam were up nearly 130% as well. In Singapore, the proportion of new female cardholders had jumped almost 10% in the week of the announcement was made. So... Singapore loves a promotion, right? And uh, fun fact for you, I, I grew up in Singapore, and in the 90s, McDonald's did a uh, promotion with Hello Kitty, and it caused such a, a, um, a stampede that people ended up being hospitalized. Um, <laughs> but in, in, in all seriousness, Singapore and you know countries like Malaysia as well are extremely competitive credit card um, markets. And so they compete with deals big ticket deals like this. They compete on things like merchant rewards and credit card points. Customer acquisition costs are extremely high. Switching is really high. It's very, very common for people to have books of credit cards. You know, they switch sort of from from one to the other. So in some ways, I don't find this very surprising. Um, the other thing as well, I, I wonder what the stickiness is of this, right? So, you know, you get the card to to get access to the tour and then you just don't use the card, right? You go back to, you go back to something else. So... I wonder. I wonder how um, sticky this actually is. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, but yeah, just always like never cease to be amazed by the power of Taylor Swift. Like, you know, <laughs> just has like so much, so much influence in so many, in so many things. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of today's show, looking at a more offbeat story from the last week. We've taken this one from the Independent, and that is office plant potted fourteen one four years ago is now a six hundred foot monster that covers ceiling and walls. Packaging company bosses Ali Brennan and her husband Des 
bought the ivy as a small potted cutting in 2009 to brighten up the workspace. Now, more than 14 years later, the plant has grown to almost 600 foot, sprouting new shoots to pin up across the office walls and ceiling every day. It hangs from computer monitors and even has its own sponsorship deal with a gardening company. Ali Brennan said, it makes a massive difference to the office. We can't envision the place without it. It would be dire. And in our show notes, we've actually got a picture of it which is kind of terrifying because it actually looks like a jungle. Um, Bruno, how much office plant is too much office plant? Oh, man, that's uh, amazing. The, the energy in this place must be awesome because it's, it's keep uh, flourishing and, and growing. But anyways, uh, I think that there are many uh, different types of, uh, of, of, of gardening and, that, and plants in the office. I think I, 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 I thought I had seen it all, but after that, I think that uh, I got to re- revise my my benchmark. Jason, obviously our listeners won't be able to see, but you do have some very um, green wallpaper behind you. Are you. Is that your attempt to recreate this this office environment? Are you trying to kind of you know, imagine this for yourself in your own working space? You know, I have managed to keep uh, an avocado tree that I planted from the pit alive for like three and a half years. So I do understand that like emotional connection where you're like, I will... Uh, I will keep this alive and see it thrive. Uh, but th- based on the photo, um, it might that might be a little bit too much um, for my house. <laughs> yeah, I had a similar thing, actually. When I was a kid, I was watching an episode of Blue Peter, like a kind of UK like children's, children's TV show. Um, and they had some sort of episode about planting things. And so I went into the garden and planted like a random conker, like it's part of like the seed of a horse chestnut tree in a random pot that my mum had just left in the garden and didn't tell my parents. And then, you know, about a year and a half later, they were just like, what is this tree growing in like the corner of our garden? Um, and it was a bit, yeah, because we had a relatively small garden um, and I'd become very emotionally attached to this tree that I had planted and then completely forgotten about for a year and a half. Um, so, yeah, we had to rehome it, actually. we had to, It was almost like a sort of, like a a puppy or a pet or something we had to had to rehome it and find somewhere where it could thrive it got planted in the field of of a random place but yeah plants can get out of control very quickly it's a dangerous a dangerous game david have you got any dangerous plants do you know what i've just realized i have this exact species at home and now i'm worried it's gonna eat me in my sleep <laughs> um that's where i'm at yep terrified yeah. it's um we've got some plants in the 11fs office actually and they've got sort of little snazzy looking gadgets attached to them which i think tell you how much water they're supposed to have which i think is what i need because i'm a part from that about one example of the tree excluded i'm a serial plant murderer um so i think this this would not have happened in any office where i was left in charge of the in charge of the plants um bruno are office plants generally a good thing i think there's been various stats about them you know contributing to positive work environments i love them but uh, i'm not the one to to take care of them i i usually forgot to, to watering this those plants and things like that so anyways but i love it i love the vibe uh it fits the, the <laughs> tropical uh, brazilian style <laughs> for sure <laughs> it does look it does look very tropical for sure okay um we this panel have been tasked with deciding the fate of this office plant. So do we chop it back and get the office back for the people or do we let it grow another hundred feet? Um, Jason, what would you, what would you do? I mean, at this point for that company, it feels like it's, it's a brand. So I think they, they leave it, let it grow. Okay. 
Okay, David? Yeah, I think keep it. It's great PR, but I think it might terrify some new hires, so it might actively like hinder the company in some ways. I don't know. Yeah, I don't actually know. Like With things like hay fever, can, do trees cause hay fever? No, trees don't cause hay fever, right? Like I, I don't know how that works. Yeah, like the pollen some trees do. Oh, no, yeah. that would be... Yeah, know. yeah. Okay, um, Bruno, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep the plant or are you going to chop it? Keep the plant. And, uh, you know, that's what that was a good PR for the company. Let's see... Uh, how it's going to be uh, one year from now. Perhaps it's all taken uh, from leaves and, and stuff. So <laughs> it's going to be fun to to observe how it's going to unfold here. Cool. Well, I mean, I think my vote is now redundant, but I think I think I would keep it as well. Although I think I would probably decorate it a bit more. It looks like it's, you know, it could do like some ornaments on it or something just to just to kind of make the most of it would be, would be my step back to them. Okay, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, DBG? On LinkedIn, at David BG. Awesome, Bruno? Uh, LinkedIn, uh, Bruno EV uh, Genies. I think it's the best source. Awesome. And Jason, what about you? Uh, FintechBusinessWeekly.com or as of this morning, on Threads. <laughs> and as for me, um, I've not been organised enough to get myself on Threads yet. I'll have a look at it. Um, but probably best bet for now is, is on, on LinkedIn, Kate Moody or or you can drop me an email at kate at alanfest.com. Thank you so much for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at alanfest.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.